I want to talk to you guys this evening about God's vision for life together. We've been living in the wake of arguably some of the most uh, divisive times in recent history. Um, I mean, just the COVID pandemic itself, I think, has caused uh, people to, to be separated for uh, perfectly good reasons, but separated nonetheless. And it's put major strain on, on just our relationships, our communities, our church community, our families. When, when we can't come together regularly and just look each other in the eyes and smile and hug and, and know that, that we're okay, um, it puts undue strain on a relationship. Um, of course, the, the, the whole sort of um, series of events and protests and, and debates and all sorts of controversy, um, a lot of good, some bad, and, and just a whole mixed range of events and emotions that came in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder. Uh, that obviously was like the thing that just took it to the next level. Um, a lot of debate, a lot of very um, intense, mixed emotions about how we should be processing that as, as individuals, as citizens, as Christians, as members of a, of a church community. Um, if you have not found it challenging to navigate the various tensions of, of that since May, well, let, let me get your notes, because I have found it to be an extremely challenging time. Um, and as a pastor, as a, as a man married to a woman who has like the passion of, of multiple lions, well, that's quite the right metaphor, but she's a passionate, passionate woman. And she loves Jesus like no one I've perhaps ever known. Um, but it, it's put strain, strain on our relationships. Um, the fires, of course, I mean, in a way, I think the, the fires kind of brought us together because for a moment it, was, it seemed like we actually had something to, to all pull together towards. Of course, even that stirred up all sorts of controversy to do with uh, global warming and, and whose fault is it really? And, and it's just controversy after controversy and, and it's been a difficult season. And my point is, in the midst of all of that, God has a vision for our life together. It's, it's core to why Jesus sacrificed his life, why he came, why he spilt his blood, why he died for our sins. It was to bring us back into relationship with God, our creator, and one another. Life together is what we have been hardwired for. There's a reason why we desire it because it's in fact part of our, uh, the way we have been designed to bear the very image of our creator. When God created man, he created us, male and female, and then he said, get married and have kids. Be together, become one. This could get very interesting. <laughs> but you know, 
remaining together, it's not always the easiest thing to pull off. Getting together, that's usually the fun part. Falling in love, meeting your new BFF, finding your new church, um, moving to a new place. It's exciting. It's work, but it's often, it's quite fun. It's exhilarating. After you get to know one another, after you begin to, to build some trust, get vulnerable, um, after it gets personal, let's put it that way, um, it becomes extremely challenging. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I've set it up well enough, I think. Jesus did something for us that we might be reconciled to God and one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, that is non-ethnic Jews, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the quote-unquote uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, talking about Jews and Gentiles, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, the life of Israel, God's people, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Let's pause there. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has made us one. That's together. That's coming together. That's life together. That's family. That's covenant relationship. That's becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. That word one, it's the Greek word heis. It's the same word that Paul uses later on in the same letter, Ephesians chapter 5, to describe the relationship between a husband and wife. He quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24. And he says, in the beginning, God made them man and woman, and the two came together and became one. It's the same word that God uses. It's the same Hebrew word in Genesis 2.24, the word echad, that's used later on in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when God refers to himself as one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's something about the people of God being made one, being reconciled to God and one another that is of the very essence of God himself. God has a vision for our life together. And yet, wouldn't you know it, Staying together is hard. 
In fact, the context of this letter that we've just sort of jumped into mid-thought is conflict. Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus because like virtually all the churches, they're finding it difficult to work through some of their, their issues, their conflict. Jews and Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised are struggling to get it together. They're struggling to keep it together. They're struggling to actually live out this togetherness that God has died for. What is the problem? Well, I actually find great encouragement in the fact that nearly 2,000 years ago, the church was actually struggling with this, this vision that God has to make us all one. Um, so I reckon there's nothing about 2020 that somehow has caught God off guard. There's nothing about the conflict, the controversy, the struggles, the issues, the offense, all of the various relational challenges that are like new to the family of God. In fact, the more I read, the more I become convinced that our issues are really quite, um, they're quite junior Quite, quite minuscule, relatively compared. And I, I hate to put it that way because, gosh, 2020 has been a doozy. But when you reflect on history, past pandemics, debates, gosh, religious wars, people being crucified, literally hung to die on the side of the road because of their convictions as Christians— kind of makes our issues, well, it, it puts them in perspective. Can, we, can I say that? Can we agree on that? Yeah. yeah. What, what, is, what is the problem? What, what is the actual conflict that the people of God are finding it so difficult to work through? As we just read... Paul is speaking to the quote-unquote uncircumcised, as they are referred to as by the circumcised. So it would seem that in this particular situation, despite this vision that God has for his kids and, and their, them living life together, that there's this major conflict and it has something to do with circumcision, which I find like super weird. <laughs> circumcision, which I think anyone with any, any level of common sense is, would probably be quick to suggest that perhaps it wasn't actually about circumcision. Like I don't think God is in heaven seething because of circumcision. What, what is the actual issue? What is the hostility? Let, let me keep reading. I actually stopped halfway through verse 14. Let, let me, let, let's finish the thought here. Let's back up to verse 13. He says, Now in Jesus Christ, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both 
one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity or one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that. Jesus died to kill the hostility between man. What is the hostility? What is the issue with circumcision? Again, I would insist that the actual hostility, the actual problem had nothing to do with foreskin. I would also insist that we all have foreskin issues. I'm using the metaphor that Paul is using. I'm so sorry, that actually sounded super weird. Is this being recorded? I'm sure it is. Okay. Let's, let's just, let's, we can all, we, we're, we're grownups. Kids aren't paying attention. We all have foreskin issues. But what are the issues for real? What is the problem? So Paul is talking, I know we're going we're gonna to take a, a, a theological deep dive real quick. Paul is talking about an identity marker that is somehow connected to the, the national, ethnic, religious identity of a people group, of two people groups. And apparently the issue, the surface issue anyways, has to do with this physical, this made by hands identity marker. And it is a doozy of an issue. It is a radical controversy. It is an issue, it's a debate, it's a theological hostility that actually threatened to destroy the church every step of the way for at least the first couple of generations of the church. In fact, I would go one step further. You do not understand the Apostle Paul and his letters to the early churches if you do not understand the level of hostility that existed between these two people groups and the significance of this symbol of circumcision. This was something that God had commanded his people to do, to cut away the flesh of the foreskin as a marker that they were included in the family of God. They were members of the covenant family of God. And for hundreds, over a thousand years, this is something that they did by faith and obedience to this commandment that God gave them. And now all of a sudden, God is doing a seemingly new thing. Although in retrospect, I might argue that it was never, it's not a new thing per se. It was always part of God's vision. It was always meant to be by faith. It was always an act of trusting that God would provide through Messiah. That a day would come that we would look back and know that all of those markers, all of those symbols, all of those, those things spoken and said were a buildup, a foreshadow to the actual promise that was to be fulfilled by God himself in Jesus Christ. And then we would realize and all God's people would realize that God wasn't interested in our flesh per se. He had always intended to circumcise our hearts. And yet the people of God in Ephesus and elsewhere 
violently would debate over the issue of circumcision. Same with certain dietary laws. Same with certain days of worship or set days of festivals. And yet the issue was never these superficial markers. It was always to do with the heart. Here's the point. What is the hostility? Why is it that Christians seem to fight so much, particularly when tension levels, anxiety levels, stresses, the challenges of life, and even human sin begin to build up in such a way that we're all just slightly or intensely on edge? What are we actually dividing over? What is your What is your foreskin issue? Because I'll tell you this, in any relationship, the issue is never actually the issue. I mean, there's the issue, like you always leave your dirty dishes in the sink. There's the issue, like you never turn off the hallway light. There's the issue that you said that one thing that kind of annoyed me or you snore too loud, or whatever it is that drives people crazy. There's the issue that my roommate, for like X number of years after I became a Christian, he literally had no sense of smell. Have you heard of that? I had to share a bedroom with this guy for like four years. That was an issue. That was a proper issue. And yet, actually, that was not ever the issue. If we are going to, as the people of God, begin to experience God's vision for our lives together, we have to begin to come to grips with, the, with what it is in our lives, in our insecurities, in our offenses, in our conflicts, in our debates, and our misunderstandings that are actually at the root of our issues. Otherwise, we will forever perpetually divide over superficial challenges, failing to never actually deal with the heart. Are you guys with me? And every time we choose to break relationship because of an issue that we elevate beyond its actual superficial status. Every time we make the superficial issue that annoys me into some sort of thing that's actually more important than God's grander vision for our oneness in Christ, we're missing the very purpose and power of the blood of Christ. Jesus died. Jesus spilt his blood. Jesus gave his life so that we could be brought near to God and to one another. Only friends, I believe right now we, in, in a very unique and intense way, we are struggling to walk out God's vision for our lives together as his kids, the children of God. How do we overcome 
the, the temptation to elevate foreskin issues over the very vision of God for our relationships. How do we overcome this? Well, I would suggest, first of all, we need to, we need to begin to be more honest about what it is we're really offended about. We need to begin to become brutally, painfully, radically honest with what it is that are causing us to divide. Like what is it that really offends me when I go online and I, and I start to sort of interact with at a distance or simply read and subtly judge in my heart all the various comments, political comments, religious comments that really just make me want to like occasionally put my fist through the wall? Like what's really going on in my heart when I'm engaging with these oftentimes otherwise superficial, superficial issues that are going on around us in our lives? Like what's really going on? What's the foundational issue? And am I doing the hard sort of heart work of getting in touch with the things that are actually causing me to want to break relationship? This is how marriages end. This is how relationships are severed. This is why families break apart. Not because of some superficial or, or, or trite issue that just really, really kind of set me off. Those things tend to be the catalyst moments that sort of are like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But at the root, there's always something else going on. In the case of the Ephesians, it wasn't circumcision that was the problem. It wasn't some dietary code that was the problem. Although those things were cer certainly the, the trigger issues. But at the root, at the root, you found issues of, I don't know what, xenophobia? Ethnic pride? Racism? Bigotry? Deep insecurity? What does keep people, Jews and Gentiles, from coming together? What actually erects that wall of hostility? If we can agree, surely God's not terribly concerned with a little bit of skin on my body. Like what's actually going on? that the people of God would erect walls of hostility, that the people of God would begin to rebuild walls of hostility, dividing walls of hostility over something as seemingly silly as a superficial thing like that. Now to be sure, symbols carry great meaning. It's not an arbitrary thing. It's not a meaningless thing. But the symbol was always meant to press us back to a place where we're actually being confronted with the own state of our heart. Anyone got the time? Okay. Let's get to the good news. 
Let's get to the good news. Paul goes on to talk about the mystery of the gospel revealed. He says, look, you know I've been entrusted with the grace of God to be an apostle for the Gentiles. Like you've, you've surely you've heard that this was like my specific calling to go and to share the gospel with those who were once far off, the Gentiles. I mean, this is the great mystery of God revealed that the Gentiles were always meant to be included in the family of God. What started out as this very exclusive uh, group of peoples now for the world. In fact, it was always supposed to be for the world. Somehow the people of God did the human thing and got really inclusive and began to ban everyone that wasn't like them. But God said, look, let me remind you. Paul said, let me remind you. This is the mystery of God revealed. It was always for the world. Jews and Gentiles, male and female, free and slave. It's for everyone. And he goes on this sort of riff about this great mystery of the gospel. And then he finally, he goes on to say, let me just, let me, let me, let me stop myself and pray for you. And this is one of my favorite Paul prayers in the whole New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful prayer. Mic drop. Letter over, yours truly, the apostle to the Gentiles, Pastor Paul but he doesn't end there. After he prays this epic prayer that has just been like echoing throughout the ages. I mean, this is a prayer that the church continues to pray that we might be filled with all the fullness of God, that we might not just know about the love of God, but that we would be filled with the love of God. Paul wrote elsewhere in Romans 5, 5, that God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. God doesn't want us just to know sort of some like abstract theory about his love. He wants us to be filled with himself who is love. To what end? This is his prayer in the wake of his, his wrestling with the Ephesians. He's saying, look, you've got to get this vision. You've got to tear down this wall of hostility. Jesus tore it down. Stop rebuilding it. Get to grips with what Jesus has done for you. Understand how much you've been loved. Realize the great price that was paid, that you might be brought together, that you might be a reflection of the very oneness of God himself. You've got to stop fighting. This superficial nonsense is, is exactly that. And he's, he's, he's playing with them. And then he prays for them. And then he says this, and this is, this is where we'll end. He says, I therefore, chapter four, I therefore, in light of all of that, 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, I'm pleading with you as a prisoner of the Lord. There's some significance in that. Throws that out there. I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you as a prisoner of Jesus do this. Make every effort to take the grace that you've been given, the power that God has poured into your hearts to walk this out, to be patient, to be humble, to be gracious towards one another, eager to maintain the unity that I've been talking about, the bond of peace, And I'm playing with you as a prisoner. Elsewhere, Paul refers to himself as a slave of Jesus. And I believe the significance is is that Paul is saying, look, this is not a suggestion. This is not, hey, this could be cool. He's saying, as a prisoner of Jesus, I am playing with you. It's an imperative. Like me, you have to obey this because you belong to Christ if in fact you do. This isn't an option This isn't, it would be cool if maybe someday we got around to it. This is a priority. This is a commandment. If you disobey it, you will answer to Jesus and you do not want to find yourself in that place. He will judge you and the church if we cannot tear down the wall that Jesus already tore down for us. If we cannot figure out how to begin to walk in this manner that God has himself saved us for, then we're missing the gospel. We're missing the very love of God himself. And so church, I'm pleading with you. I feel like the Holy Spirit has just been urging me and everyone around me, because this is a season to shine. This is a season to begin to look ourselves in the mirror and ask the question, what issue am I elevating above the relationships that God has entrusted to my my care? Because all relationships are stewardship from God. What issues am I elevating to this level that somehow would supersede God's vision for our togetherness? Where do I need to repent? What can we do to to be the example of God's oneness to a world around us, a world that desperately wants unity, talks about it all the time, programs it, markets it, but doesn't know how to get there because only Jesus can tear down that wall. Only Jesus can cut away the flesh in our hearts. 
Micah, would you come up here and play some guitar? Because I need to, I need to end there. Thank you. Can we stand together?